Good to be with you folks today, and if you have a Bible, and if you can see it, uh, come with me to the book of Ephesians, the scriptures that we had just recently uh, uh, read there, and uh, we'll take some time to be in the Word of God together this morning, and uh, see what we can glean that can be a benefit not only to Rooted Church, but the ultimate goals that God sets up for us in ministry, and why He develops churches in the first place. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, we'll, we'll get through this. Uh, we thank the Lord for this uh, location where Rooted Church is and for what God has provided. And we're excited to see what God is going to do and has done uh, through the ministry of Rooted Church and your pastor. And we look forward to see this church continue to grow, to advance, and to become what we call sustained in effectiveness for the honor and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In some way, I, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm back in Romania, uh, back in 1990 or 1991. I keep forgetting this summer. I do believe that Ceausescu, who was the communist dictator, if you remember your history, his life was taken in December either of 88 or 89, but I believe it was 89. And uh, the summer of 90 or the summer of 91, uh, a number of believers in Romania, after communism fell, got a hold of me and asked if I would come to Romania uh, for the purpose to renew youth ministry in the country and establish a youth camp uh, in the Transylvania Alps of Romania, which is not far from uh, a city called Timișoara. And so uh, I agreed at the time that I would come, went to Romania. And uh, this kind of reminds me a little bit about it because... Uh, uh, every day I would travel, each day I would preach in, uh, I'd, I'd usually preach about seven times per day in the two, half, two and a half weeks that I was in Romania, and the evenings were always the most difficult because uh, they would always turn the electricity off. Uh, every night, whole cities would, uh, Timmy share with 200 and uh, some thousand people, they would shut the whole city down uh, every night, they just turned the electricity off and you had no electric and so when we would meet in the village churches at night there was no electricity and I can remember how dark it was. It was the darkest place I'd ever been in my life because there was no light any place except for a little candle they would put by the pulpit up by me and they put this candle there and then I would commence to go preaching and if you ever uh, go to Romania I don't know if it's still the same today but in those days uh, usually you preach three sermons uh, you know uh, one one for the unsaved who do not know the Lord one for the saved who do know the Lord and one for whoever's left and so you kind of preach three sermons in every service and you work your way through each sermon uh, uh, in that fashion. But I remember when I first went to uh, Romania, there was a young pastor by the name of Mia Gangla, Sega Baptist Church in Aradia. And once I got through the border, we were at the border for almost 18 hours because uh, it was still controlled by many of the guards who were under Ceausescu, and they were quite belligerent about what had happened in the country, that communism had fallen, and that there was a new day, and so it was a very difficult time to get through the border. But once I got through the border, uh, Mihai was waiting for me, and we went immediately, because I got through early on a Sunday morning. They finally led us through about 4 o'clock in the morning, and I knew I was supposed to preach that morning at the church. And uh, so he said, well, 
He sent my wife and our team, he sent them all off to get showers. And he said, we don't have time for you to get a shower. He says, you need to come with me. We need to make the trip to the church. And so we made our way to Aradia. And there uh, I spent the morning preaching. But I remember making our way there in this Dacia, they called it. It was a car that it looked like they ran out of metal. But uh, anyway, it was a Dacia that was made in Romania back under communism. And uh, we were riding. I remember there was a terrible smell of gasoline and the reason is because there is no gas in the country, so they would carry these big uh, milk pails of gas in the trunk. And of course it would tend to spill at times, even though there was lids on there. And so the whole car smelled like gas, and I, I always thought, if we have an accident, it's all over. Yeah, no, this is never going to survive. But uh, when we on the way there, I, Mia had said to me some words, and I thought they were interesting words. He asked me a question, and the question was simply this. He said, are we going to survive this? He said, are we going to survive this? Now, when he asked me the question, I, I thought he was asking it in essence of all the effects of over 40 years of communism and everything that it did to the church. Because if you know anything about Romania, the church in Romania did not go underground. It stayed above ground. Many of their pastors lost their life because of it. Many of them were imprisoned because of it. Many of the, of the home leaders, the husbands, had been imprisoned uh, during these periods of time. And they had suffered tremendous, tremendous persecution over those 40 years. But they made a calculated decision. And their decision was they were going to operate independent of the fact that they were not a welcomed reality in the country of Romania under communism. But now communism had been broken. For the first time, freedom had come. And for the first time, an American pastor was now in their country and was preaching the Word of God. And so he asked me the question, are we going to survive this? So I thought he was going backwards with his question, but he wasn't going backwards. He was going forward. See, what he was really asking me is, can we survive freedom? He says, under communism, we grew and we enlarged and we reached into our communities and the work continued and, and it went on even though at times they, they burned our churches down. At times, they, uh, in one place I was, they took me in an area where they took the communist tanks and they literally bulldozed the church down with their tanks and destroyed it. But he says, now we're free. He says, are we going to survive freedom what he was really asking me in times like these, are we going to survive? And walk in and ride in the car with him in the dacha all the way to Aradia, as we began to discuss it, passages like Ephesians chapter 4 came to mind. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through chapter 4, verse 5, came to mind as Paul addressed the church at Ephesus in some of the great challenges that that church was facing, just like Shega Baptist was going to face in Aradia, they were going to face tremendous challenges as well in this newfound set of circumstances in the country of Romania. The book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to benefit the church of Ephesus, just like he wrote 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, though he wrote it through Timothy, it was while Timothy was serving as an apostolic delegate to the church of Ephesus. It was a church that Paul had great concern about. He spent three years establishing the church 
in Ephesus. Then after the three years, he continued on to his missionary journeys to establish churches in other communities, but he never lost in his own heart the necessities and the needs of that church to carry on its ministry. So one of the books that he would write to this church would be the book of Ephesians. Now as he writes this book, and it's six chapters long as you will find, he spends three chapters in what we would call doctrinal issues. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. Because he understands that the survival of the church of Ephesus, or really the survival of any church, is first based on a system of beliefs, or what we call the faith that has once and for all been delivered unto the saints. And so Paul spends three chapters on doctrine, and in those three chapters, he isolates on one issue, and that is a relationship with the personage of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And that's why in what we often refer to as the longest Greek sentence in all the New Testament, which is found in Ephesians chapter 1, his emphasis is that we are to be found in Christ. That Christ is the issue. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, he furthers that lesson of this relationship to be found in Christ. That's why tucked into these marvelous chapters are those verses that I'm sure many of you have memorized in chapter 2. For by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Our very salvation is dependent upon grace. And that very grace is resident because of a relationship that finds us in Christ. For me, I was 17 years old. 1965, month of June. And I had heard about Christ over a period of about three months. Having never been raised in a Christian home. Had never darkened the door of a church in 17 years of my beginning life. Now I was hearing about Christ. And I was hearing about this grace that was offered through His death on the cross. He gave His only, be, be, he gave his only begotten Self as the Son of God. And He gave it through blood and death. Because without the shedding of blood, there could not be remission of sin. But it took over three months for me to understand how that could be applied to me. And by simple faith and response to that grace... That night, in June of 1965, I was found in Christ. For by grace, I was saved through that faith. And I found total forgiveness of sins, and life was given to me. Paul spends three chapters on a number of really what we would call theological presentations and doctrinal understandings so that we would realize that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, and that relationship is found and involved with the personage of Jesus Christ Himself. That is, we must be found in Christ. This morning, if you are to say or make the claim that I am a child of God, or that I am one that am saved, in the sense of the Scriptures, forgiven of my sins, given life that eventually will be eternal in the presence of God because of what I have done in Christ is what makes the difference of our identity. He finishes those three chapters 
And then in chapter 4, he becomes practical. You could put it, if you wanted it, for easy remembrance. Chapter 1, 2, and 3 are doctrinal. Chapter 4, 5, and 6 are deportment. Two Ds. Three chapters on our deportment. That is, they are the three chapters that are the result of the fact that you can identify with the doctrine of the first three chapters. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, if you are in Christ, then you are prepared to assume what Paul is to instruct the church of Ephesus and these who are in Christ in chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. Now he lays it out in a unique way by centering most of his attention around one little Greek word, it's the word we often translate, and we read it this morning, walk. For instance, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, walk worthy. Chapter 4, verse 17, he says, walk different from the other Gentiles, those who are not in Christ. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, walk in love. Chapter 5, and what, somewhere about verse 8, he says, walk as the children of light. And then somewhere around 11 or 12, right in there, 13, he says, walk circumspectly. Five times, he challenges those who are in Christ to walk in a certain way. And walk is simply a word that we would define in English, and we would also define it in the original Greek text. It simply means lifestyle. So Paul commends the church at Ephesus. And he's speaking on a subject of survival itself. He's saying this church will survive because of its identity. It is in Christ. But it will survive it if it will assume the reality that that identity takes on real exposure in lifestyle. So he says walk worthy. Walk different. Walk in love. Walk as children of light. Walk circumspectly. He puts it all together. And then all the verses that are centered around each of these walks become a commentary on each one. So if you looked at verse 1, and you followed verse 1 all the way down to verse 16, it is a commentary centered around walk worthy. Verse 17, he starts the second lifestyle term. When he says walk different from other Gentiles, he continues it from verse 18 of chapter 4 all the way to the end of chapter 4 when he starts another walk in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, continues it until he gets to the next walk, I think about verse 8, where he says walk in light. Then he's got a short little commentary. Then he says walk circumspectly with an even shorter commentary. And then he comes to verse 18. And he makes this interesting statement in the middle of all this lifestyle. He says, be not drunk with wine, wherein is debauchery. But he said, here is the new development. But allow yourself to be brought continuously under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now why would Paul have placed that there after going through five contexts where he challenges anyone who is in Christ to walk in a certain way. Or to live a lifestyle in a certain way. Because even Paul understood, as God was inspiring and giving him the text of the book of Ephesians, that each one of these five walks 
would become extremely discouraging and create despondency if there was not supernatural help provided to maintain them. So what Paul simply says is this. If you simply walk worthy, or walk different, or walk in love, or walk as children of light, or walk circumspectly with all the commentary that is there, he says you'll never survive it. You'll become extremely discouraged unless you are willing to allow the Holy Spirit to have control over your life. And he says, when the Spirit of God has control over your life, he says then in verse 19, he said, it's going to make music in your heart and music in your relationships. You'll be singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in your heart because the Spirit of God is controlling you. Instead of a Christianity that is those in Christ frustrated by their identity and their responsible lifestyle, they become a Christianity by the control of the Spirit of God that lives in tranquility. He says, not only will you experience tranquility that makes music, he says you will experience thankfulness. Because he says there, in, after verse 18, 19, and then verse 20, he says, being thankful, and he'll say it and put it in the context, in all things. He says you will develop an appreciation for life itself. And then he closes it in verse 21 where he says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. He says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. So he says, basically he says, when the Spirit of God is in control of the Christian, who is seeking to manage five walks of life with all the commentary that goes with them, because you are in Christ, that Christian will live a life of tranquility, a life of thankfulness, and a life of submissiveness. Or if you want the etymology of that Greek word, it goes back to a word to be devoted. A life of devotion. Three of the telltale marks of being Spirit-filled is tranquility, thankfulness, and devotion to each other in the Lord. And notice it says to each other, submitting yourselves one to another because now a body has been formed. See, Paul wrote to a church, which is a body of believers, those who are in Christ. He laid at their feet tremendous responsibility about lifestyle. And he said, this can be accomplished without discouragement by the Spirit of God filling your life who will bring the tranquility and the thankfulness and the submissiveness or literally the devotion one to another. That's why I started by simply saying, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Yes, it begins with a relationship to Jesus Himself. But it continues horizontally as a relationship with each other. And what Christianity does when the Holy Spirit is in control, as He said there, as we begin to submit ourselves or become devoted one to another, and we do it by this quality and this, really, measurement by the fear of the Lord. And then isn't it interesting that when Paul closes that off, having now shown us how to live, 
He then walks into the family and says, Now, wives, here's how you are to respond to your husband. Husbands, here's how you are to respond to your wife. He goes into chapter 6, and he talks about children responding to their parents. And he talks about parents responding to their children. You go a little bit farther in chapter 6, and he talks about the relationship of employers and employees, and how we relate one to another. You know, it's interesting if you follow Paul, and you work through the Scriptures together, it's interesting to me that every time seemingly that Paul lays out under inspiration of God the responsibilities of those who are in Christ to live their lives, he always lays out quickly in connection to it an immediate illustration where this can be seen. It's almost as if Paul says, if these walks are really in your life, the first place you will really see them in experience will be in your home. It's kind of like the place we let our hair down. The place where we can be who we really are is where Paul says, examine your relationships there and you will see the credibility of your walk. Or examine it at the workplace. He puts it all there. And then he concludes the letter by taking us into that beautiful illustrated uh, reality of the, the, uh, the, the clothing of the soldier. He talks about the helmet of salvation and the breastplates and all these things. And, and he says all of this is to be cloaked in prayer. In essence, what Paul does in the book of Ephesians is he lays out the pattern of Christendom. Three chapters on how I got in. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I find myself in Christ. With that now as my foundation, this is my responsibility I have five walks. Those walks are built on the premise that I'm allowing the Spirit of God to be in control of my life. He being in control of my life as I face the demand of the lifestyle that I live, now that I am in Christ, it will bring me tranquility, it will bring me thankfulness, it will bring me devotion. You will see this in my home, you will see it in my place of work, and I will maintain it by putting on the armor that is necessary. Now, all that's put together to be understood by one little piece of advice on how in the world are we going to survive this. You see, Mihai was looking at survival almost in a physical sense. We've only known how to live under communism and persecution. We don't know how to live now that we're free. But Paul took it to a higher level. He talked about survival when so much is at stake in our individual lives as believers. In the middle of all of that, in chapter 4, Within the context of the first walk, Paul puts a little context in the middle of all of this information, in all of this truth. And we could say it this way, for this reason, Jesus said six months before His crucifixion, I will build My church. Why is rooted so important? 
Why is colonial that pastor prayed for so important? Why is it so important that in every community all across America and all across of our world, we formulate and put together not only organizations that are called churches, but organisms? Because we are actually alive. We are in Christ. Within the center of this great text of Ephesians, Paul said, I have sought the comfort of your survival. With all this lesson, in the middle, chapter 4, verse 11, through verse 17, or verse 16, I should say, he says, our God has sought the comfort of our survival. Now, how did He do it? First of all, He did it in what He gave. And in what He gave, He had what we call an ascending purpose. He said, I gave apostles. I gave prophets. I gave evangelists. I gave pastor teachers. So here in this context, Paul, as he lays out all this responsibility, lays out all this foundation in Christ, responsibility that we live in a certain way, but we have been granted the benefit of the Holy Spirit, and with that we've been granted the identity of home and job, where we will see the reality of our walk being lived out. He says, in all of this, I've given this great, we could call assurance policy, called the church, and inside of that church, first of all, I gave a gift. And that gift is not a talent. That gift is not an ability. It's a person. In fact, it's in a multiple of persons. He said it started as an apostles. Carried on as with prophets. Then it became evangelists. Now it's pastor teachers. Let's just deal with the last one. God said, I have given to this unique thing called the church, so identified as the church at Ephesus, so identified as rooted. And what I have given to benefit you, to make it through the challenges that are laid out here in the book of Ephesians, he says, I have given individuals who are called pastor teachers. Pastors, poimenos, shepherders. Those who shepherd a flock. Those who shepherd a flock who are noted for one thing, for their teaching. It's not the only thing they're noted for, but at least in this context. He said they are the pastor teachers. Given were the responsibility to teach. Now with that in mind, he laid out the ascending purpose there, for he says they were given for what? In this pastoral teaching role, they were given so that they would perfect the saints. Now I love the fact that we're identified as saints. See, those who are in Christ now are given a brand new identity. We are called literally the Hagias. We are called by our position in Christ the Holy Ones. But we have yet to live out the practicality of our identity 
which is already found throughout the book of Ephesians as we have rehearsed. But to ensure that that is a possibility, God says, I have given a gift to this body, and that gift is the pastor-teacher, and he is responsible for the building up in the sense of the perfection or the completing. It's a neat little word. A word we find involved with, for instance, the curriculum of the pastor in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Okay, that passage in 2 Timothy is addressing the Bible. It's saying that the Word of God came from God. And it says it is profitable for instruction, for correction, for reproof, that what? That the man of God, it's anthropos, that the man, the woman of God, verse 17, chapter 3, 2 Timothy, that the man, the woman of God, may be perfect. Oh, that takes us back here to Ephesians. First Timothy also written to the church at Ephesus. Here we have the perfecting of the saints. In 1 Timothy, he says that the man of God might be perfect. Here, it's the result of a pastor-teacher, thus assuming a curriculum, the Word of God. 1 Timothy chapter, I mean, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, it's the Word of God itself. And in verse 17 says, By this that man, that woman of God, may be perfected. Now, he's not talking about sinless perfection. In fact, the word is simply put, it means to meet all demands. You see, life is demanding. But you as a child of God, because of a pastor-teacher subservient to a curriculum, that curriculum, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, is the very Word of God, which is held as profitable. In both cases, the pastor-teacher and the curriculum brought together bring about a perfecting. And what is that perfecting? Simply the little word that means to meet all demands. It has a sufficiency so that you and I, as those who are now in Christ, can meet all the demands of life. But the provision of that meeting was granted by the gift of a pastor-teacher to the church and the curriculum of the Word of God that he teaches. So he starts out by simply saying, survival for you and I is first of all based on a gift that's been given. And that gift is the pastor-teacher. Within that gift is the curriculum, because he's called not simply a shepherd poimenos, he has also carries a much greater official title in his teaching, and that that teaching is subservient to what you and I give reference to as being the Word of God. That combination is essential to our survival. But as I said, there's an ascending purpose here. Because if you look at verse 12, it doesn't say that the pastor-teacher was simply given for the perfecting. But he was given so that what? So those who were called the saints. Notice, it's not an issue of we've got clergy or we've got lay people, but so that the saints as a body would do what? He says in verse 12, that they would do the work of the ministry. You see, in Christendom, which is 
relationship. There are no spectators. All of us have a responsibility for the work of the ministry. All of us are to be involved in the work of the ministry. we got this wonderful ascending purpose. It, it is ascending, working from this great foundation of the pastor-teacher, taking the curriculum, the Word of God, whereby this message gives us the ability to meet all the demands of life. But it does more than that. It literally pushes us all into ministry. All into service. All into activity. See, it's not saying that it's the pastor-teacher doing the service. It says it's all of us doing the service. All of us finding our place of ministry. All of us activated. Because you see, we're, we're moving from this foundation of the pastor-teacher with the curriculum and the Word of God to the saints of God all ministering in their place. Because when you put all these joints together, it builds itself up, he says later, into a vehicle that can only be defined by one glorious word, and that is the glorious word love. But in this ascending purpose, he closes verse 12 by saying what? He said, we have all of this taking place so that in the end, we are built up. I'm trying to see if I can even see it. I can't. But it's for building up. Well, we'll get it as close as we can, okay? He says that what? That this body would be built up. You are a body. Rooted church is a body of individuals. You have right to this body if you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you bear demand. A demand to walk in a certain way. And that walk should so express itself that we could go to your home and see it seen in the wife, see it in the husband, see it in the children, see it in the parents. We could go to your place of work, whether you're the owner or they're the employee. And we ought to be able to see it in place. But you will not secure it unless you bathe it with prayer and put on the whole armor of God. That's how he closed chapter 6. And he says here, is the means by which I'm going to bring this about. I'm going to build you up as a body through this ascending purpose. I give as a gift to you a pastor teacher who brings you the truth. But you must also dive in and be a part of that ministry. That's why I've loved Christendom. Because there are no spectator sports in Christendom. We're all on the field. We are all responsible to live out our Christian lives. And we are all responsible to carry on this wonderful relationship that is not only vertical with our Heavenly Father, but horizontal with each other in Christ. And as we carry this out, He says we are all built up. So we start with this ultimate gift with its designed purpose in mind. Now, with that purpose, though, we go to a second point here. And that is the ultimate goals. Now, this is not a three-point sermon. It's not a four-point sermon. It's a two-point sermon. With just a lot of stuff attached. But I want to go to the second point, because if the first one is purpose, the second one is goal-oriented. 
And he picks that up in verse 13 through 16. Keep in mind, this is the center of a context. Elongated from chapter 1, which became all doctrinal through chapter 3, he becomes very practical in the beginning of chapter 4, remains that way all the way through chapter 6, highlighting it with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, highlighting it with the armor of God in chapter 6, but then coming back to the middle of it all and saying, I have put together this thing called the church. And to the church, I've given a gift. It's the pastor-teacher. With this ascending purpose. That's our first point. And with this ultimate goal. And what is that ultimate goal? That ultimate goal, if we can see it here, is until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, he says, speaking the truth in love. Keep that in mind. Speaking the truth in love, only so he'll say it at the end again in verse 16, so that it builds itself up in love. He'll conclude it all by using love twice. As being a measuring line. By how this truth is extended by voice. And how this truth is related by experience. He said there's one word to define it. And he simply calls it the word love. If I looked at my notes, which I am actually going to try to do, he would be putting it this way. Here's the goal of the church. Keeping in mind, you can't meet these goals without the ascending purpose. The ascending purpose was established. Verse 11 and 12. With that ascending purpose, he now lays out the goals, and they are quite simple. He says, my goal is that you as a church come to a unity of faith. Faith here is doctrinal. We know faith in the Scriptures can either be doctrinal or it can be relational. Usually when it has the article in the original language, it's usually doctrinal. He's referring to the faith as a body of truth. We would reference that to the Scriptures. The faith, as in Jude, once and for all, delivered unto the saints. That's a body of truth. Usually when the article does not precede the word faith, it's usually a reference to something that's relational. As in, for by grace are we saved through what? Through faith. That's relational. By faith, I accepted the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins as, as my personal Savior. But that faith was based on the faith, the body of truth, on the Word of God itself. And he said, it is my desire. Think of this. He is asking for each of these local bodies as we have here with Rooted. Bearing out their purposes as in verse 11, 12, that we would come to a unity. He doesn't say a uniformity. He says, come to a unity of faith. 
In fact, the way it is put in language would give us the idea because of earlier context, not only that we would come to it, but we would maintain it. As it is attained, we maintain it. Isn't it any wonder? In that final word of the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 5. I know chapter 4 does not end at verse 5 in 2 Timothy. But that's the last didactic section out of 13 epistles that the Apostle Paul gave us. And in that last section, in the last of the last, if I don't lose you here, see the last didactic section given to us by the Apostle Paul, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 5, that context. In the last of the last, chapter 4, verse 2, he says what? He says, preach the Word. Paul says to Timothy on behalf of the church of Ephesus, as we are in Ephesians, a book written to the believers at Ephesus, he says, my concluding thoughts and the greatest need of this church, since Paul will be martyred soon after writing these words, he says, is that you preach the Word. It's the Word of God. It makes a difference. And it is this faith that you and I are to come to be united around. Thus, this wonderful ascending purpose that preceded it, that creates the environment of the church being a center what? Of the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. It is the preachment and the teachment of God's Word by which you and I accomplish our purposes. And you know what? We survive. And thus we survive. All these statements. And he goes on, not only unity, but he says, a knowledge of the Son of God. That is, he takes knowledge and he directs it in a special way. You know, knowledge is simply the collection of facts. We've got these wonderful words like knowledge and understanding and wisdom. He wants us to come to a place of the knowledge of Son of God. He wants you to come to the place that all the facts that are necessary in regard to the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the wealth of this marvelous book before me, the Word of God itself. He wants us to come to the essential reality, he says, of that basic knowledge. Why? Because if you read your text there, the ultimate goal is to become like Christ. That we become like Christ. Or Christ-likeness is the fullness, the appropriation of all that Christ is into our own personal lives. So basically, the foundational goals are basically unity of the faith, knowledge, of the Son of God. Or we could call it maturity and unity. What is this church all about? What is rooted really all about? Well, first of all, we're about a people who are in Christ. And with that goal in mind, we should thirst that around our community all who are not in Christ 
that we bring to them this glorious message so they could have the same honor to be in Christ. But those of us who are in Christ have been granted through this ascending purpose the responsibility not to be spectators, but participants to join into this ministry, to be workers and to be busy working about the daily responsibilities of all that is required of us with the ultimate goal, having been so benefited from a pastor teacher, that as we are building each other up, that we come to the place of a unity of faith being unified around this truth and a knowledge of the Son of God, the epitome of the relationship. That's what Rooted Church, that's what Colonial Baptist, or any church that seeks to be identified by that term church, that's who we are. That's our responsibility. That's the obligations. As we think of how do we survive. Keep in mind, as Paul writes these letters, this is a dying man writing to churches just like this one. I don't know how large the church of Ephesus was. I actually don't think it was that large. Friday night we talked about the church of Thessalonica. I actually don't think that church was really that large. But they never cease being a church. Ever noticed in the Bible, there's not large churches and there's not small churches? There's just churches. But all of them have the same obligation. All of them have the same responsibility. And what Paul does in the book of Ephesians is he lays that out. Let me conclude by simply saying this. What Ephesians really is saying is simply this. My friend, if you are in Christ, then you need to be in a solid church. And in that church, you should never be a spectator. You should always be a willing participant. Because in the end, our very survival is dependent upon the admonitions given here in the book of Ephesians. It's a large book. A lot of truth. And all of it's for our survival as we seek to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. With this recognition in mind, have you ever wondered why, as I close, that the Bible so often refers to us going to heaven that we are entering our rest? That we enter our rest. There's an assumption there. The assumption that is on this side, we have become tired. On this side, we have labored. On this side, we have so worked. So I'll close it the same way as I did Thursday night. The day is going to come. We're either going to be raptured by our Savior or we will walk through the halls of death. Whichever one comes, and of course I like the upper taker better than the undertaker. But what 
whenever one comes, for you and I who are in Christ, the only thing at that time that should be left to do should either be to die or to be raptured. Shall we close in prayer? Father, we thank You for the book of Ephesians. We thank You for its central message of why You gave the pastor-teacher. The functions that are so accelerating and the goals that are in mind. I pray You'll use Rooted Church not only for the fact that this church has the ability to share Christ and others who are not in Christ can then be found in Christ become brothers and sisters in Christ. But so that each one who is here in Christ would realize their obligation and that together we would serve the King of Kings and build this ministry to bring honor and glory to the Savior for that day when we will be put into His presence. In Christ's name I pray it. Amen.